Welcome to The Thought Hackers, the show where you will learn how your mind works and discover how to change your thinking from leading experts and through inspiring stories. Good day, everyone. My name is Nathan Siegel, and I'm a member of The Thought Hackers. With me today is a man by the name of Richard Turner. 62-year-old Richard Turner is universally acknowledged as the world's most skilled card mechanic. In other words, he is a manipulator of playing cards relating towards gaming. He can make anyone win or lose at will. He is also a sixth-degree black belt in karate. None of this would be extraordinary except for only one thing, the fact that Richard started losing his sight at nine and is now completely blind. Richard relentlessly pursues perfection while struggling with the reality that his biggest weakness might also be his greatest asset. Richard Turner not only defies the odds, but is proof that there aren't as many limits as we might think. Richard, I'd like to welcome you to the show. Thank you, Nathan. I'm very happy to be here. Me as well. It's a pleasure to speak with you. You first came to my attention a, a while ago. One of my friends introduced me to the Penn & Teller show and I watched what you did and I watched how you fooled them completely but what got my attention even more than what you could do with cards is your discipline and what you do to keep going on a daily basis and what I'm wondering is how did you develop that? I think it's my character and my nature I call myself the poster boy for obsessive compulsive behavior and proud of it I, whatever I was doing growing up, I always had to take it to the extreme. I, if somebody could do something, I had to do it. If they were going to climb a cliff, I had to climb a higher cliff. They were going to dive off a cliff, I had to dive off higher. If, whatever it happened to be, I just had this compulsion in me to push it. Whatever someone else did, I hate to put it like this, I had to do it better. That makes a lot of sense. So, so when you, if I recall correctly, you became interested in cards when you were seven years old and then when you were nine you had scarlet fever and then after that started to lose your vision. Is that correct? That's right. That's correct. I was watching a TV show uh, Maverick with James Garner and I thought he was so cool and how he would uh, play cards and uh, know when somebody else was cheating or come out ahead and there were other westerns that you know there were scenes uh, particular gamblers gambling scenes and I was just fascinated by that and fascinated by the Westerns and I wanted to be a gambler and we were card players. We were very, very poor. We had chessboard, checkerboard, Monopoly and cards and that was it. And uh, so we played a lot of card games and and I uh, started uh, practicing with the cards to make sure I always won against my sisters and it just kind of kept perpetuating itself. So when, when you started losing your vision, how did that affect you in terms of your card playing ability? It must have been, been quite a shock, I would think. Yeah, uh, I was actually known for my artistic talent from uh, starting at five years old, uh, six, seven, eight. And then uh, when I, I started losing my sight, I started losing my ability to do paint and draw. And that was an aggravation and a frustration for me. When it came to the card playing, I could still put a card within you know a couple inches of my eye and see what it was I could do that I could do that all the way up to until uh, I was a uh, 40 something or so um, but you know that was uh, my vision put another way uh, 
started going south at nine, but when I time by the time I was like thirteen, well, about actually more like eleven or twelve, it was twenty over four hundred, which is twice as low as what's considered legally blind. What that means is, what a person would see four hundred feet away a car, say, or a motorcycle, I would have to, it'd have to be 40 feet away for me to be able to note it. Or another way of putting a card that is 400 inches away, I would have to have it two inches away uh, to see it. Wow. And, and so the, I, you know, I, would still, I could still play cards, and, but what it did do is it made me focus on the, on the tactile end of the handling of the cards, playing with the cards. And so I started uh, doing things uh, using my touch. So the uh, the card, uh, not being able to play the cards, which I still could do, it just gave me more abilities because now my fingers, I knew when I was holding six cards rather than five cards. And uh, anyway, I started developing at that time very amateur ways of creating an advantage when I would play. Yeah, I remember watching a, a TV show where you were being interviewed. I, I don't recall what the show was, but you were on this particular show, and one of the uh, hosts there asked you about cutting the cards, and, and I think the number was, he, uh, I think you said 38, or he said 38, and you just cut it and handed it to him like when in about two seconds and the guy said my god you did that so fast and then he just sat there and he just started dealing the cards and had exactly 38 and that really astonished me that you could be that accurate that fast yeah I can go actually I go from 1 to 52 within about a second two seconds is a long time for me between a second to a second and a half um, uh, to two seconds I can I'll, I'll be able to hand the person whatever number they ask for. In fact, I can do that with postcards and business cards. I once uh, wanted to buy a carpet for one of my homes in San Diego, and I went into a carpet store, and this guy had saw me on an old TV show from the 19, early 80s called That's Incredible. And he goes, hey, you're Richard Turner. I saw you on That's Incredible. And, he's, and uh, he said, I'll help you find your carpet. He owned the store. And uh, he said... Uh, he thought I had a, a gaff deck of some kind. It has a little indexing system or you have a, a, a card sticking out or something. I told him I can do it with any cards. He said, no, you can't. And I said, I can do it with postcards, business cards. And then, anyway, I picked out my carpet and, and he were in his office. He remembered what I said and he picked up his business cards and said, are you telling me you can do it with these? I said, sure, as long as they're all cut from the same stock, you know, you know not 10 different, different people's business cards. He said, let me see you do it. And I said, well... I'm not here to work. I don't work for free. Why are you? Why should uh, you? You don't work for free. Why die? And he goes, I knew it. You can't do it. And I said, Tell you what, if I don't get the number you asked for with your business cards, I'll pay double for the carpet I picked out. You already have my credit card. Otherwise, you give me the carpet for free. And he goes, Really? I said, Yeah. And he said, Okay, I'll go for that. And he asked for seventeen. I handed him seventeen. He carpeted my house. Cool. It was cool. Very cool. Yeah, no doubt. I mean. What the other thing I'm really curious about is you you obviously developed this really great skill of being able to tell the difference between wh what would you call it the texture or the the depth of the ink on the cards how would you both. how would you define that both I, I, uh, the depth of a card the depth of the embossing the embossing depth the caliper the moisture level um, uh, all all those things uh, are my hands are sensitive to. I didn't know that. I didn't know the cards were embossed. I thought they were printed. Oh, yeah, no, they they're embossed. Otherwise, they can't breathe. 
they didn't the playing card company when I brought it to their attention didn't even know why they embossed the cards because it was something they started doing a century ago and uh, if you you remember the photos how old are you if you don't mind me asking about uh, 20s 30s 40s 50s you just go in like that uh huh how, how old are you I'm asking you oh how old am I I'm I'm 58 now okay so you're old enough to remember when they had the pictures when they had the silk technique and the glossy remember yeah that? Well, I, I seem to recall that, yes. Yeah, it was a short period of time because then digital came in and so on. But the silky te the photos, when you passed them from hand to hand, they moved from finger hand to hand smoother. The silky, the glossy ones would gum up together because they couldn't breathe. And all it took uh, uh, was just any moisture from your fingers getting on a card, or in, the, in that case, those photos, would cause them to stick together and you had a harder time uh, thumbing through them. So same thing with a deck of cards. If the cards are not embossed, they have no ability to breathe, and they will be really smooth when they're right out of the box, but within a very short period of time, they, they gum up just from the moisture from people's fingers. I didn't know that, but you know what, what you're talking about with those cards from years back. I seem to recall that. I, I recall looking at cards that they seem to have so, like a satin finish on them, some of them, and other ones had this glossy, smooth finish on them. Right. Until you, until you brought that up, that that, and no one else has thought, no one else thinks about that either. Even the people at the U.S. Playing Card Company, where I've been, I've worked with them on making, helping them make better cards. They make the best cards in the world. Um, I, you know, I've been their touch analyst for a couple of decades, um, and and they didn't at that time even know that until I brought it to their attention. That's interesting. So, in terms of your ability with the cards to be able to touch them and know which one you're dealing with, how long did it take you to develop that? Uh, well, let me put it another way. I've been practicing with cards for 55 years. Yes. That means I'm a little bit older than you, and I'm not. I, I, I thank you for calling me 63 or 62. My next birthday, I'm 64. Oh um, well, I went by the bio, and I guess it was a bit uh, incorrect. It's all, yeah. Well, see, here, here's a, another thing. On my 63rd birthday, I turned 53, so I gained 10 years. So you were not, you, you were off the other direction. Okay. Because that, that way I, I have 10 more years to work with. Um, but most people aren't buying that, uh, that I gained, I, I dropped 10 years, but that's on the side. Uh, back to um, the question was uh, with U.S. Well, I'm sorry, say the question, say the question again. I'm trying to remember what my question is. We 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 covered a fair bit of ground, but it it just had to do with uh, how long it how long did it take you to develop the ability to know what a card was just by touching it? Well, what I was gonna, that's what I was going to say is I started working with cards 55 years ago, and but there was a period of time when I practiced with the cards 10 to 20 hours every day, seven days a week for 26 years straight. And then when my son was born, when I was 41, uh, when I my wife had she had put the breast milk in the bottle, and then I would have to feed him, he would slobber on my card, so that caused me to have to cut down. So um, then I cut down to like 10 hours a day, and now um, I only practice between three to 10 hours a day as a rule, maybe 12, 14 hours a day, um, but not every day like it used to be for a number of decades. So I've just put in about 150,000 hours behind a deck of cards. So no matter what you're doing, if you're, uh, if you're uh, uh, Michael Jordan on the three-point three line shooting a million 
shots, eventually you're going you're gonna to get a touch for it. And on, just to give you, for instance, one particular move that I do, uh, uh, my particular method of dealing a card known as a second, a second dealer, uh, I have done that in front of a live audience over 5 million times, and in practice, over 100 million times. And as I've been, I was, we're sitting here, the cards are between my, are sitting on my legs, and I have not stopped dealing that particular move that I just told you about. Uh, so anyway, if you do something long enough, you're going to develop a touch or a feel. Yes, I would imagine so. And, uh, you know, part of the thing that makes your story even more intriguing is the fact of losing your vision, becoming what you call yourself as a, a card mechanic. And part of the reason for this show, what we're doing, is we we talk about people who come from trauma, move through it in one way or another, and move through the place of just surviving, the thriving. You're obviously thriving. And what I'm what I would like to know, one of the many things I'd like to know actually, is what do you say to people when they complain about limitations? Well, I say that we all have limitations. Every single person out there has something. It, it might, it, they might have a weight issue. They may have, they may have lost their hearing. They may have been in an accident uh, serving our country. Uh, I think, well, and I, I mentioned this on Penn and Teller, and it got resonation around the world. And I, I don't mean to offend anybody, but for me, I think two of the worst limitations are laziness or procrastination. People that procrastinate, you know, that's a disability. So, you know, you get, either you accept it, face it, and decide you're going to deal with it and get over it and move forward and accept your strengths and accept your potential and decide what that potential is and then go for it. And I say it's like going from A to Z without letting B, C, D getting in the way. Yeah, that makes sense. Kind of, kind of uh, leapfrogging, if you will, or jumping right over the whole thing, going to where you really want to go. Yeah, blast through them. Just uh, go over them, around them, through them, and I, I, I have to say, I enjoy them. I enjoy when I, I come across some challenge or some obstacle or some situation that I, I, I'm going to have to battle my way through. That's it is, uh, part of his perspective. I. I don't look at uh, negative situations as an, uh, in a negative way. For, uh, for instance, when I was doing Penn and Teller uh, show, the first, I was scheduled to do the third season. And when I went to the uh, gym and the casino there to work out, I already did my, my, uh, my preliminary uh, blocking and setting of what I was going to do. So we were already in production and getting it set for the live taping, which would have been two or three, three days later. I went to the gym and I moved one of the wor workout benches to the side. I, well, at first I felt I wouldn't go down. It's one of those adjustable ones where you can put it up for like curls, lay it down to, down to do bench press and so on. And it was upright. It was actually at a tricep position you know, at a halfway point and it wouldn't go down. Then I felt up and it was so butted up against the wall. So I moved it forward, and in that process, that thing slammed down like a giant clamp. And it was the steel part brace that on the back that hit the steel part brace on the, the frame of the bench itself and literally crushed my thumb. And, I, and, I, and 
My first reaction, my friend who was with me, a guy named Doug Gorman, Colonel Gorman, uh, he, I said, Doug, bring me a down a bucket of ice and don't ask any questions. And he brought me down a bucket of ice and I said, I crushed my thumb, and I'm, but I paid $14 for this workout and I'm not going to stop until I'm done working out. And so I, I iced for three minutes, worked out for three minutes, iced for three minutes, worked out for three minutes. And while the, and I, and at this time the thumb is getting bigger and bigger. Now it's bigger than my big toe. And then I went to the executive producers and I said, uh, Link, um, I might be in trouble. I, I can't do what we schedule, but I might be able to do the first part and the third part, but I know I can't do the deals. And he goes, what are you talking about? You're going to the hospital. And they rushed me to the emergency room and, and a week later, I had surgery, and you can actually actually go watch the surgery online because I refused to be put under anesthetic, and uh, uh, so I just shuffled the cards with one hand while the doctor takes a spoon and props my lifts my thumbnail up like a hood of a car, and then cuts open the skin underneath and pulls shoots out all the blood and the bone underneath. It was all crushed like the they called it looked like the head of a the, the emblem on a Mercedes Benz, you know, the little hood ornament. And, uh, but I just, I, I laughed my way through the whole thing. I, I said, well, this will be good because the film comes out a year from now. So instead of having uh, the publicity that comes from Penn & Teller a year ago, now it's coming out when it is most advantageous. And so I didn't uh, look at it as a negative. I just looked at it as a, a well, this is kind of an interesting adventure. To me, everything's an adventure, and I thought, that's an interesting adventure, and everybody around me will tell you. I was just laughing my way through it, and we had the film crew from Delt. They were coming in because they were hoping to get interviews with Penn & Teller for the film itself, and uh, and I had, I had to call them when they were en route. So, oh, by the way, I'm not doing it. I crushed my thumb. It's all broken up. And they what are you talking about? And uh, they got there, and they you know did a bunch of filming. Well, tell us the story, and... But anyway, my point is, to make a long story short, yeah, look at everything as an adventure and don't look at, uh, at an opt obstacle as an obstacle, but as a challenge, as an adventure, as something fun to overcome, uh, uh, like, like Bruce Lee, I like what he says, you know, uh, you know we, come, we come to uh, plateaus, but you, you don't stay there, you must go beyond them. If it kills you, it kills you. So. Yeah, very. I, I, I like the way you've changed the 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 look and feel of things. And it is, it's interesting what you said about adventure because I remember one time being on an adventure driving in Mexico, and we wound up in all sorts of problems. Uh, bridges washed out, and my girlfriend got sick. And she thought, it said to me, "I thought adventure was supposed to be just fun." And I said, "No, adventure means everything." getting really sick, being really uncomfortable, it, it involves everything. Yep, I was one time with the same situation. I was I going up uh, Highway uh, 380, 395, uh, going up the, like down the backside of uh, uh, the Sequoias, and I was in the, in the wintertime, and uh, there was all the roads were blocked off because we were going to cut over to the top, and uh, we found out and we couldn't get out, get across. But then we found one where there was somebody had went around the barrier. We said, well, let's go around the barrier. And uh, and then all of a sudden there's snow, more snow. Now there's a, like a 50-foot patch of snow across the road. 
And I'm going, can you drive on snow? I have no idea. I said, well, just go back and take a big running, uh, just hit that accelerator. We'll just jump over. We'll just go right through it. We ended up plopping that car right on top of it. And then uh, now I'm stuck. Uh, and I ended up digging my wheels uh, out. And the wheels, all four wheels, are now not touching the ground. The belly of the car is resting on a big snow. So I said, well, while we're here, we managed to go hiking. So we're, we just uh, went to high hiking around. And about an, a couple hours later, we hear these noises. And it was this uh, father with three sons with these big monster trucks, four-wheelers. And they said, they were just finished pulling the bumper off our car. Um, they said, well, do you want to go forward or do you want to go back? And I thought, well, in this case, we better go back. Our cars aren't as big as yours. But, you know, once again, it was a, it was a situation where we could have froze to death. But instead, we just went hiking and enjoyed the moment. Brilliant. Just brilliant. This is the kind of thing that I was looking for. And another thing that comes up is reading about your ability to do with karate. And I think you said you haven't missed a workout in something like 46 years and two weeks or something like that. 46 years, uh, eight months, and uh, uh, 11 days. So what I'm really curious about is how do you manage to function uh, I, I don't know what they call the place where you would practice karate, but how do you function when you're not able to see your opponents? Oh, no, that's two different questions. One's discipline comes to working out, and, uh, you, know, uh, you know, I just, wherever I am, my wife, when we travel, we always book ourselves hotels in the, next to the gym, and then I have a whole way of uh, doing a whole, my, my entire workout within a, in a hotel room. Um, but when it comes to fighting, back then, I could see, I, like I said, my vision was 20 over 400. So if you just picture, wherever you look, there's a hat in front of your, your face. Because the macula, the center part of the retina, was gone. It was the first thing that went. So just picture, wherever you look, there's a hat blocking your view. And then around the hat, everything is just uh, 20 over 400. That's the part that was twice as low as what was considered legally blind during that time. So now you're looking off and you just see a fuzz. All I had to know was where that fuzz was and wherever that was, I just went attacking it. And I, I was not a counter puncher. If I, if I, if I waited to get uh, to try to counter a punch, I just got hit. So I would, uh, as soon as I knew where my target was, I just went on the, I was aggressive. I just went on the attacks, throwing kicks, punches, whatever I would decided I was going to do at that particular uh, a moment. But, uh, I was not a counterpuncher because, uh, and that's one of the reasons why whenever I entered tournaments, I lost every time. Because tournament fighting, you have to, uh, it's whoever, first point wins. And I had an iron stomach. I could do, uh, you know, I would do a demonstrations where I would let a 250 pound man kick me in the stomach 10 times. And then I would put my hand three inches away from their stomach and drop them to the ground. And uh, so I, you know, because I, I just had an iron stomach, so I purposely leave my stomach as an open target. By the way, I held my hands. I'd hold my 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 defend my front hand up towards my chin, and then uh, the other hand a little side, just make, making them want to take the bait. And as soon as they would hit me there, which which didn't bother me, then I would plow through them, and I would hit them. And there were times where they were on the ground out, but I lost. So I was a standing. I was a standing loser, and they were a they were a down winner. Wow, that's quite the story. I but mean, my, my karate instructor John Murphy, 
he he said he'd rather have a standing loser than a than a knocked out winner, and he he he, he kind of fostered that in us. Um, he he said if they play by the rules, we'll play by the rules. But if they start doing this cheap shot stuff and just tag and then run, he said take him out. So he was he uh, had no problem with us approaching uh, the tournaments in that way. And even though we we lost. Uh, most people would say we won because uh, they were unconscious and we weren't. Yeah, <laughs> that seems to be pretty obvious to me, but obviously I, I don't understand uh, the rules of these things or how they work. So, your life right now, what is the number one thing you do on a, on a daily basis that, that keeps you going, that keeps you successful? First thing, probably kisses from my wife. I have a beautiful wife, Kim, for 20, 27 years, and uh, we are each other's best friend, and, and, uh, and people say that comes across in the film. Uh, she, she's just my treasure, and uh, we are each other's uh, strength, if you would, and so that's the first thing, and there's, with every, every time we uh, wake up, first thing we do is kiss. Whenever we go leave, kiss. Come together, first thing we do is kiss. Same with my son. You know, he, he, most boys grow up, oh, mom, don't touch me. Don't hug me. No, not in front of my friends. And uh, you know, all his life, first thing he does when he comes in, gives dad a big hug and a kiss to mom. Never leaves without giving a big hug to dad and a kiss to mom. So my family are my number one uh, grounding, pleasure, uh, foundation, whatever you want to call it in my life. And then, uh, and then, and we enjoy the same things. My wife has a black belt in three different karate systems. She has two second degree black belts, one under me in Wadokai, uh, second degree in Taekwondo, and a first degree in Jikido. My son is all black belt as well. And so all of our life, we, we work out you know, five to seven days a week um, as, a, as an average. And uh, um, so, anyway, we, we, and anyway, that, uh, that, I guess that's, I don't know if I'm answering your question, but that's the... If you are, you're doing a beautiful job. Thank you. It, it's not the kind of answer I would have expected or thought of, but everybody that we talk to is different, and I really like what you had to say. Well, I'm blessed. I'm very, very blessed. And I hear that. fortunate man. I hear that. Yeah. If, if you saw my wife, you would, you, would, you would see it. You would hear it, and you would see it. <laughs> well, perhaps one day I will meet you and your wife and your son. Who knows? Yeah. Um, my son's name is Ace of Spades, by the way. It's yes, called. I remember that. I thought yeah. that was really cool when I heard that. That's a double entendre. It was Asa, A-S-A. It's a biblical name. King David, we, we, everyone's familiar with King David. It was his great-grandson, King Asa. And uh, it means physician or healer. And my wife was reading through the Bible going, uh, now there's an interesting name, Asa. And then she goes, and his middle name could be Spades. And I jumped out of my chair. That's the name. That's it. And she goes, no, no, no. We're not naming our son Ace of Spades. I'm making a joke. I said, that's the perfect. She stepped in it, and she couldn't get out. It's one of those things. It's yes. one of those things. And, and he loves his name. And, and, of course, now she's very happy, too. Yeah. Makes perfect sense, especially considering where you come from. So, so for those people who are listening to us, to us today, for people who want to know more about you, how would they find out more? Oh, well, my website, richardturner52.com, 
Richard Turner, how many cards in a deck, 52.com, and uh, or the film Delt uh, hits the theaters next Friday in New York, and then in L.A. the following Friday, and then nationally in selected theaters uh, the the week the weeks following, and they can follow that on DeltMovie.com, DeltMovie.com, IFC, Sundance selects they're the distributor of the film, and uh, and I have to say the the guys that did the film, and it's very strange you know having a film done about yourself and being the subject of a film but these guys managed to do something that filmmakers all try to do if you're making a comedy you want people to laugh and if they laugh you were successful you have a dramatic tearjerker and if you make them cry and that was your goal you made it you were successful or if you uh, want to make their toes curl and their toes curl you're successful or if you want to inspire or motivate and that was your objective and it inspires and motivates they were successful. All of those elements, somehow, these filmmakers managed to to achieve in this particular film. And uh, in the when wherever we go, when people see it, they fifty at least fifty percent of the women are crying. Twenty per, twenty or more percent of the men are crying. And then the next scene, they're laughing their heads off, and then their toes are curled. You know, because I well, scenes I I eat an eyeball that I just caught at in Costa Rica. Uh, which is just one of the things, I, like I said, I always have to take things to the extreme. And uh, you talk about fierce food, that show, oh, those guys are amateurs compared to what I've done over the years. Uh, and uh, but then it also, they've woven the story in such a way that it encourages and inspires people. So uh, they did an amazing job. That's good to hear. And I'm going to have to watch the rest of the film. I, I learned so much with just what I was watching, and it also helped with watching you perform in different ways over the years, different shows. Right, right, yeah, yeah and they go back a long ways, don't they? Yes, they do. Uh, yeah. Lots of different styles of your appearance with that huge handlebar mustache and, okay. and all of that, and, and the different hats that you would wear. With the, it was really cool. Yeah, yeah. So, so anyway, I, I want to thank you very much for, for taking the time to be on the show with me today. Uh, for those of you who have been listening, my name is Nathan Siegel. I'm a, one of the Thought Hackers. My guest today has been Richard Turner. And thank you very much for listening to us, and I hope to catch you in the next episode. You've been listening to the Thought Hackers. Make sure you subscribe and get each new episode emailed straight to you so you don't miss a show. And have a look at our resources page where you will find programs, audios and books that will create change in your thoughts.